want to talk a little bit about quackery and the history of medicine. I think there is this misconception that anything outside of mainstream medicine is just quackery and is based on like people's belief in it or the placebo effect or something like that. And that is not true. There are some alternative medicine remedies that are actually very effective and maybe just haven't been studied or there isn't enough profit in it for pharmaceutical companies to want to market that treatment. So I want to talk a little bit about how mainstream medicine became mainstream and how we started to stray away from folk healing. This obviously is going to focus mostly on the history of medicine in the U.S., so there's that. The statements I make on this podcast are for educational purposes only. My statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. Therefore, the statements I make are not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. All of the information I share is simply for informational purposes only. You should always consult with a licensed healthcare professional before you start taking a new vitamin, supplement, medicinal herb, or conventional medication. You should also get professional advice before you start a new exercise program or if you suspect that you might have a health problem. Knowledge is power. I hope you use the information I share with you to seek the best care for yourself and the people you love. Thank you for listening. Before the 20th century, the licensing of physicians was largely honorific and it did not exclude unlicensed healers from practice. So basically, there was no requirement to be licensed and even people who were licensed, like it wasn't taken very seriously and the law didn't really focus too much on that. In 1760, New York passed the first law for examining and exclusively licensing doctors, but that law was never enforced. In 1763, the physicians of Norwich, Connecticut asked the colonial legislature for licensing to distinguish between honest and ingenious physicians and the quack or empirical pretender. The problem of competition was recognized as serious, but the request was denied. Following the American Revolution, medical societies organized and legislatures granted licensing, but these laws were powerless and ineffective. Americans have always been fiercely independent, and the high-value placed based on individual choice was in direct conflict with the desire of medical professionals to control healthcare. As a result, a variety of popular forms of alternative medicines flourished openly. In fact, if we had been there in the mid-century, we would have had a hard time knowing which practitioners were considered to be regular and which were alternative. Medical schools were small businesses, and the quality of their graduates was very unreliable. Harvard was among the first to attempt reform. In 1869, Charles Eliot, the president of Harvard, said, quote, the ignorance and general incompetency of the average graduate of American medical schools at the time when he is turned loose upon the community is something horrible to contemplate, end quote. The quality of medical education changed dramatically after Abraham Flexner, a young educator with a BA degree from Johns Hopkins, carried out a study of medical schools. His investigation was funded 
funded by the Carnegie Foundation for Advancement of Teaching. Flexner made surprise visits to the schools and documented the often pathetic resources in laboratories, the lack of access to patients, the incompetent faculty, and the generally disreputable state of most American medical schools. His report, published in 1910, recommended that 100 of the 131 existing medical schools be closed, but 70 eventually survived. Flexner did not start the reform movement in medical education, but his report was a watershed event in the transformation of medicine. The reform not only improved the basics of education for regular physicians, it also established a principle that many expected would eradicate the competition, including natural medicine. A whole new medicine organized around regular medicine was to replace all separate medical sets. The new medicine was to be objective and scientific. It was assumed that would mean that all treatments shown to work would be included and all those that were ineffective would be excluded. The Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 and medical licensure soon consolidated the medical profession's political power. Using that power, the profession actively worked to prevent others from practicing medicine without a license. Doctors labeled those who did not fit the medical models as quacks in their efforts to eradicate quackery were presented as public education and protection. So my question is, were they really interested in protecting and educating the public, or were they interested in controlling the medical field and earning the most profits they could? Let's see what history has shown. The word quack comes from the old Dutch word quacksalver. The term became popular in the 1500s and described people who sold salves and ointments, and who generally generally made exaggerated claims for them. Some have suggested that the word is also derived in part from quicksilver, which is the element mercury. Mercury was a common ingredient in regular medicines of the day, as well as in some home remedies sold by quacks. By the 20th century, the term quack was not at all restricted to ointment sellers. Modern dictionary definitions are very specific about what the word means. People who pretend to have medical knowledge that they do not in fact have. In other words, quackery is fraud. Unfortunately, the term is used very loosely, so it is often applied to all sorts of healers whose practices are believed to be ineffective. The implication seems to be that any intelligent adult should know that if a type of healing is not offered by a licensed doctor, then it is useless and therefore must be fraud. This sloppy use of the word merely serves to insult those with whom conventional medicine disagrees. But still worse, it gives cover to the real medical frauds, of whom there are many. After all, with no distinction made between charlatans and sincere healers, it is much harder to identify the charlatans. This last part is making a really good point, that if you just apply the word quack to anything that is not mainstream medicine, it's really deceiving. A lot of times there are mainstream practitioners who use ineffective treatments, and by definition, that should be quackery, but because it's mainstream, it's not seen as such. And then there are times when we have folk remedies or alternative healing practices that are very effective, but they're labeled as quackery because they're not mainstream. So I think it's important to understand that sometimes these words are used as a way to kind of demean something that might actually be effective. So just be careful when you hear people just painting with a broad brush and calling all of alternative medicine quackery, because there are some very effective treatments in alternative medicine. Now I want to talk a little bit about the effectiveness of natural medicine 
medicine. It has been shown that some natural remedies work. Natural remedies are capable of serving goals that are broader and more complicated than those of modern medicine. Two compelling examples come from women's natural health traditions. For many years, women have learned from other women that eating live culture yogurt helps to reduce vaginal yeast infections. In 1992, a study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine concluded that this practice is, in fact, effective. Similarly, women's oral folk tradition has long taught that drinking cranberry juice can prevent and treat urinary tract infections. In 1994, a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association concluded that this tradition is also correct. Cranberry juice does have this effect. There are prescription treatments that are available to treat both yeast infections and urinary tract infections, but the natural remedies have the advantage of being inexpensive and they don't have side effects. But they also don't always work, and that's when prescription treatment might be necessary. But the problem with prescription medications is that they not only have their desired medical effects, but they also have some side effects, which can often be quite serious. The same is true for natural remedies, though, so you have to be careful. Many people have the mistaken idea that if it's natural, it can't hurt me. Some of the most powerful poisons that we know of are found in nature, and every year, in addition to those individuals who are poisoned accidentally by plants, there are people who enter hospitals because plant remedies they prepare to treat medical conditions have in fact poisoned them. Poisoning can happen in several different ways. Some plant medicines that are effective are simply too dangerous to use outside of medical supervision. For example, the plant purple foxglove or digitalis purpurea contains digitalis, which has a powerful effect on the heart. Digitoxin and digoxin, the active ingredients of foxglove, have been used by physicians to treat some forms of heart disease since the 1920s. Digitalis was brought into medical use by William Withering, an English physician. He learned of the plant's use from an old woman in Shropshire, an herbalist who had cured dropsy in individuals who doctors had given up on. Dropsy is the accumulation of fluid in the body now known to be caused by congestive heart failure. The Shropshire herbalist and other natural healers around the world had long used foxglove in this way, but the difference between a therapeutic dose and a toxic dose is very narrow and a poisonous overdose can be rapidly fatal. So today, most herbalists recommend against using the plant outside of medical supervision. The plant leaf is still available and some physicians are willing to prescribe it as opposed to pills of synthetic digitalis or digoxin for those who insist on natural treatment. The deadly reaction to poisoning doesn't always occur quickly. Some popular plants in natural medicine have turned out to cause health problems when used over time. For example, comfrey is a plant that has been widely used as a medicine, but laboratory studies have shown that with chronic use, it can lead to liver damage or even liver cancer. This kind of effect, something that develops slowly over time, is difficult for healers to recognize. Today, most herbalists and all medical authorities recommend against the internal use of comfrey. A third way that plant medicines can become dangerous is through adulteration. This can happen either by accident or intentionally. Accidents happen when someone gathering herbs in the wild unintentionally picks the wrong plant or happens to grab two plants at once, one intended and the other not noticed. Also, many plants have poisonous parts that need to be separated from the edible or medicinal portions. Because many commercially available 
herbs come from outside the country and the products are not regulated, sometimes herbal medicines contain enough plant poison to cause sickness or even death. Even more alarming is the fact that some herbal medicines coming from outside the country have been found to have pharmaceutical drugs added to them. It seems that some marketers feel that these hidden drugs will improve sales by making the effects of the medicine more immediately noticeable. Either directly or through interaction with prescribed medication, such adulterated herbs can cause serious illness or death. All three of these dangers are greatest for infants or very sick people with low body weight. These dangers have been most frequently associated with commercially available herbal medicines. These risks are not enormous, but they are real. It is prudent to learn about plant medicines before you try herbal remedies. Watch out for unexpected side effects and stop using the herbal remedy if side effects do occur. And for infants, you should just avoid the use of herbal products in general. I am personally reluctant to give any kind of medicine to babies because it's difficult to know what whether they're having side effects because they're just so small. And I know a lot of people commonly give babies fever-reducing medicine, and I used to do that. But the more I learn about fevers and how they might actually help us heal, I am just super reluctant to treat a fever in myself or in my kids at this point. My children are older now, but I do see the healing benefits of fever, and I think it's important to allow our immune systems to do what they've been doing for literally thousands and hundreds of thousands or millions of years if you consider animals. I'm going to get into fever more in a separate episode because I think it's important enough that I should talk specifically about that, about why fevers are beneficial. I even learned recently on a podcast by one of my favorite authors, Sam Keen. He writes really interesting books about actual medical treatments and medicine in general. It's just very interesting. Anyway, he has had a podcast episode on one of the healing benefits of fevers and how there was a doctor a long time ago who was trying to use fever to treat syphilis, or I should say one of the issues with syphilis is that it infects the brain and it causes mental illness. And he found that people who have a really high fever, like near death, they say, you know, a fever of 105 or 106 degrees Fahrenheit is considered pretty dangerous in an adult especially but there seems to be some healing effects to that fever. I think he found that six out of nine of the patients that he tested were actually relieved of their symptoms of mental illness. Some of them were even able to return to work. So there is something there. I wish it was studied more. If we did find that fevers were beneficial, I think that would do bad things for companies that make drugs like Tylenol, Motrin, and that kind of thing. The ibuprofens and acetaminophens that are used so commonly in everyone, from infants through the elderly. I just think that we need to use those things less because some other research that I read found that you prolong your illness by treating a fever. If you allow your body to go through the fever, the fever is going to kill off the pathogen more quickly, where if you are constantly 
constantly lowering that fever, it's going to take your body longer to heal. There are many things to consider there, and that's why I do want to dedicate an entire episode to fever and its healing benefits. But for now, I want to continue talking a little bit more about the history of medicine in the U.S., and let's get into natural remedies and cultural authority, like who gets to decide what an effective treatment is or is not. In the past, it was up to the person to decide whether they felt the treatment was effective and whether they trusted the practitioner that they chose. And now we have these like regulating authorities like the FDA and the CDC. And you know, it seems on the surface like that's a really good idea. We should have this governing body who's going to keep us safe and who's going to do the research for us and just let us know, okay, this one's effective and that one's not. But there are some issues with that. I did a couple of episodes recently on the CDC and the FDA and them withholding information and all of the bureaucracy involved in having a governing body like that. But let's get into the history of it. Natural remedies have long existed in tension with official medicine. An important source of that tension and a large part of the difference between the two involves cultural authority. Cultural authority is the power to make statements about how the world works, about the real nature of the world, and have those statements accepted. Throughout history, in most parts of the world, it was life experience that gave people cultural authority. Religious status and a few other factors such as the family into which the person was born could also influence one's authority. In many natural medicine traditions, the knowledge of remedies is learned orally, representing the accumulated knowledge of past generations, and the evaluation of the treatment is done by the patient's observations of what seems to help. So like I said, we trusted people based on community. We knew, okay, that person is a healer. They've been healing for a really long time. They studied under their grandparents or, you know, we trusted people based on our own opinions, our own beliefs, our own culture. But then in the 19th century, as science and technology began the rapid change that now characterizes our modern world, the structure of cultural authority changed. Scientific discoveries increasingly revealed important but invisible things about the world, from invisibly small bacteria to radiation. It became more and more obvious that we could not know everything important about the world with unaided senses. Too many things you could not see might make you sick. As a result of this growing division between everyday experience and scientific knowledge, which was strongly supported by the apparent advantages that technology could deliver, modern society shifted. An unspoken agreement developed in which experts in science and technology were given cultural authority and the right to govern their own institutions. The internal control of experts over the definition of their own expertise includes the opportunity to set limits in the area to which their expertise applies. The result is that the scope of expert cultural authority has grown consistently in modern society. Of course, that means that at the same time, the scope of authority based on life experience and not on technical training has decreased. The best medical care has come to be understood not as the accumulation of past wisdom, but rather as the very latest technique. And the very latest technique is often explained in terms of how it puts 
past ideas to rest. Very recent training has largely replaced, in the mind of many, the value of lifelong clinical experience. I think this is a problem personally. In this modern view, elders are people who require extra care, not people you turn to for an understanding of the world. And as far as a patient's right to evaluate his own treatment, the double-blind placebo-controlled clinical trial has been developed. The patient's ability to know what really helps has been discredited as merely subjective. Up through the 1960s, many people believed that this societal change in authority was irreversible and that technical knowledge would become the only kind of knowledge considered valid. But the 1960s brought deep change, ranging from the hippie movement to the consumer movement, civil rights and women's liberation, even the charismatic movement in Christian religion. All of these changes were rebellion against various kinds of authority and were a reassertion of the right of people to find in their own experience some valid basis for understanding and evaluating the world. The result has not been the complete overthrow of expert authority, but rather a process of trimming that authority back. In medicine, the idea of informed consent, which requires doctors to tell patients what is proposed as treatment and why it is proposed, is an example of the reduction of medical authority and the return of some authority to the patient. That is how it should be. We should not be following doctors' orders. Doctors should not be ordering people to do anything. You have control. You have autonomy over yourself. You get to decide for your own body what is effective treatment. The idea that a medical doctor should have more authority over a patient's health than the patient themselves is really crazy. We all know what's best for ourselves, and if we decide to trust somebody else's opinion, that's fine, but we should never be put in a position where somebody else's opinion supersedes our own when it comes to our own health. Natural medicine is made up of traditions in which the wisdom of past generations is gathered. The idea that natural medicine contains important knowledge, some of which may have been forgotten in modern times, depends on a recognition of the value of life experience and the possibility that people really knew something, even before there were microscopes and x-ray machines. This idea is receiving renewed interest thanks to the recent changes in cultural authority. Ideally, our society will find a balance on these issues. There is no need to decide between life experience and technical training, or between official medicine and natural medicine. Both have great value. The greatest value will come from being able to understand what is appropriate to each. Herbal treatments clearly have have some value, but they also have risks. The sense of closeness to nature and the avoidance of harsh side effects, which can come from the proper use of herbs, are best evaluated on the basis of life experience. Only the patient can answer the question, how do these herbs make me feel? And how much did the side effects of the remedy bother me? On the other hand, many serious illnesses require medical expertise for their successful management. Some patients believe they can increase the success of their medical treatment by all also using natural remedies. This is a good idea as long as there is an informed process in which both the doctor and the patient understand the treatment
treatments being used. Okay, I'm going to close this out by talking a little bit about natural remedies and alternative medicine. As the modern understanding of authority and life experience have improved in recent decades, we have also become aware that natural remedies have persisted, adapted, and grown. The definition developed by the 1995 Complementary and Alternative Medicine Research Methodology Conference, sponsored by the NIH Office of Alternative Medicine, identifies alternative medicine as all health ideas and practices at any particular time in history or in any society that are different from those found in official medicine. We can refer to many forms of alternative medicine as cosmopolitan, meaning that they are present in many different regions and are similar wherever they are found. All of conventional medicine and much of alternative medicine in the United States consists of cosmopolitan traditions. Homeopathy and chiropractic are two prominent alternative examples. Some natural remedy traditions have retained many ideas for centuries, but other elements of them have changed very rapidly. This combination makes natural remedies very adaptable, and this is what accounts for its regional variation. Most alternative medicine traditions stress the underlying causes of diseases as well as the immediate causes. The underlying causes are usually seen as some kind of imbalance or lack of harmony within the body. The techniques of natural medicine are almost entirely ones that are broadly legal, require little or no technology, and are therefore available to practically everyone. Although the highly learned healer generally has a body of knowledge that requires time and special circumstances to acquire, the individual elements are nonetheless generally available to all. Thus, the materials of these systems can readily be organized into all levels of health behavior, from first aid and home treatment to the most specialized and authoritative forms. This makes it very easy for people to enter natural medicine systems. Natural medicine lacks many of the official barriers found in scientific medicine, and it makes available to patients a wide range of options for varying levels of personal involvement and decision-making. For many patients, this is an attractive feature of natural medicine. Like scientific medicine, some natural medicine is obsolete, some is dangerous, and some is ahead of its time. These ideas represent the struggles of human communities to make sense of disease, suffering, and death, and to do something about the human condition. I hope that information helped you to see that there are benefits in both conventional medicine and alternative medicine. We don't need to choose between the two. I think we can incorporate both into our own practices for healing ourselves. I don't think we should ever hand over control of healing our bodies to someone else, whether it is an alternative medicine practitioner or a conventional doctor. We just need to understand that neither group of healers knows everything or has all of the answers, and there will always be some inherent risks and side effects in any treatment option that you choose. Some of the side effects in natural medicine tend to be like side benefits, but that's not always true. And when I say side benefits, I mean that some of the herbs you take in alternative medicine can help you feel better in ways that don't directly treat the ailment that you're dealing with. Sometimes you might take something that is supposed to help your heart, but it might also have effects on your uterus or something like that. So I think it's important to understand these medicines. Now, the example that I just gave actually comes from an herb called motherwort. Leonaris cardiaca. I want to talk a little bit about motherwort and what it's used for because I just happen
happened to stumble upon it accidentally. I was looking for mugwort. I wanted to share some information about the medicinal healing benefits of mugwort, and that was not in my book, but motherwort was. And I happened to notice that motherwort is used for heart disease, but it's also used for women's health concerns. Motherwort is a uterine stimulant, so it can induce labor if you're at the end of your pregnancy, but you should be very careful using it at the beginning of a pregnancy because it could lead to miscarriage or abortion, however you want to term it. I think these are important things to know about. Motherwort is something that people take to prevent blood clots, but like I said, it also encourages strong uterine contractions, so women who are trying to conceive or are pregnant should not take motherwort, except at term, like at the end of the pregnancy if you're trying to induce labor, but even then, it should only be done under the supervision of a physician, but for women who are not trying to induce labor, women who just want to bring on their period, motherwort can be a very useful herb. So I know that the term abortion is controversial, but that's basically what I'm talking about. If your period is just a little late and you are not trying to be pregnant and you want your period to just come, motherwort could possibly help with that. But like I said, you're going to want some supervision from a doctor or a trusted medical professional, especially if you happen to be in one of those states in the United States where abortion is illegal and they might view your natural treatment as something other than just taking care of your own health. So be mindful of that. We have to be very careful about who we choose as our medical professional, as our doctor or natural healer, because in some states, certain medical treatments have been criminalized and they do tend to surround women's health concerns. So that is a problem in and of itself. But thank you for taking the time to learn a little bit more about the differences between alternative medicine and conventional medicine and what is considered quackery and a little bit of the history of how conventional medicine became conventional. It was obviously a fight for control over the public health. There was clearly an institution, a a whole lobby group of people who really wanted to discredit natural healers. And they have tried really hard, and I feel like they're still doing the same thing, trying to downplay the effectiveness of herbal treatments and downright just refusing to do the research on potentially useful treatments because they are considered alternative. And I think not wanting to do the research is kind of like, if they start confirming that these alternative treatments work and they give credibility to what people have been saying for like thousands of years, then I think they're worried that they will lose market share. People will actually start to consider alternative treatments more and be a little more skeptical about pharmaceutical drugs. Obviously, we can see with everything that has happened recently surrounding the vaccine that they don't want anybody saying anything negative about their novel treatment. Anywho, thank you so much for listening. I have to say that I do think there's a little bit of quackery involved in this whole COVID-19 vaccine. That may just be my opinion, 
but I do believe that it's backed up by some scientific fact. Initially, there were all of these lockdowns and the whole thing was get everyone vaccinated so that people won't get COVID. The spread of COVID, they said that it was a disease of the unvaccinated and all of this stuff. And now we see that these places like Australia that were like 95% vaccinated, people are still getting COVID. Like a lot of people are getting COVID and now they're making the distinction between people who who die of COVID and people who die with COVID. And they're really just backtracking a lot on what they originally said, which was that the vaccine was supposed to help people to not become infected. And we see that that did not work at all. So now they're saying, oh no, the vaccine was just supposed to reduce serious illness and death. And it did that. Well, you know, I don't believe any of their reporting now because I see that they are picking and choosing what information from their studies they're willing to talk about. They don't want to talk about the people who died in the studies, even when it's obvious that the number of deaths was really high in vaccinated people compared to unvaccinated, and that maybe possibly the vaccine was having a deadly effect on some people and a serious health effect regarding people's hearts in other people. They don't even seem to really want to talk about that. And anytime they do talk about the cardiac risks involved with becoming vaccinated, they like to point out that there are cardiac risks involved in being infected with COVID. And I agree, there are cardiac risks involved with being infected. But why don't we consider this, that if somebody was already infected and then you give them the vaccination, you have just compounded their cardiac risk. My theory is that in people who had previous COVID infection or who may actually be currently infected, adding vaccination to their immune system in some ways can overload the immune system. It can distract the immune system from focusing on the actual virus and instead it's focusing on these spike proteins from the vaccine. And then it can also just increase the risk of death because we know that having COVID puts stress on the heart and other organs and that getting the vaccine can also put stress on the heart. And when you compound those, it can obviously lead to death. And I believe it has caused death in some people. And that's one of the things that they just don't want to talk about. And if they are literally killing people and trying to hide it, I'm going to call some of what they're doing quackery because I just don't think it's good science to hide any parts of the data, especially data that shows people are dying from what you're doing. If we had an alternative treatment that was causing the same side effects, it would be blown up all out of proportion. It would be all over the news. Nobody would be paying attention to the benefits of the treatment because when people see that death is a possible side effect, they are definitely put off by that. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. That was was just a little bit about quackery, some of my opinions, some actual history. I hope you found this informative. Thanks for listening.